0: In the 2020 documentary Crip Camp, A Disability Revolution, directed by James Lebrecht and Nicole Newnham, out now on Netflix, there is a moment early on where Larry Allison, the director of Camp Jened, explains why the camp underwent such radical changes in order to become a place where teenagers could be teenagers. He says the following, we realised the problem did not exist with people with disabilities. The problem existed with people who didn't have disabilities. It was our problem, so it was important. For us to change. This resolution to repent and open oneself to receive interruption, grace and growth from those society devalues lays a helpful groundwork for today's conversation. In his recent work, my guest today seeks to reclaim the church's historic theology of disability and extend it to demonstrate that people with disabilities, like all created in God's image, are servants of God's redemptive work, and that it is the very clinging to the idea that one is able that requires the merciful assault of Christ's grace to set us free for a redeemed communion in our churches and an abundant welcome in our society. My guest today is Brian Brock, Professor of Moral and Practical Theology at the University of Aberdeen. His book is Wondrously Wounded, Theology, Disability and the Body of Christ, out now with Bailey University Press. This is an excellent book which weaves together constructive theological insight and Brian's attempt to witness to the witness of his son, Adam, who makes a cameo in this interview. My name is Liam Miller, and this is Love, Rinse, Repeat. My guest today is Brian Brock. Thanks for coming by. Well, Brian Brock, welcome to Love, Rinse, Repeat. Thanks for having me, Liam. Uh, it's great to have you here. We're talking about your book, Wondrously Wounded, Theology, Disability and the Body of Christ, out now with Baylor University. Uh, just as we kind of get started, oh, uh, Baylor University Press, at um, as we get started talking about the book, uh, I guess just the broad question is kind of, I guess, what, you know, tech. Writing a book takes time and effort. You've got to have be at least, you know, moder- modestly, mod- uh, modestly motivated to read it. Uh, what mo- motivated you to, to sit down and put the effort in to write this book? Well, uh, some years ago,
1: almost twenty years ago now, I started my graduate study in medical ethics, and I felt like medical ethics was too technocratic and doctor problem focused, and Um, so I had really ambivalent feelings about whether I could be in medical ethics or not. And I kind of set it aside for a while. And, um, then about 10 years later, my son, Adam was born who has Down syndrome, uh, and later was diagnosed as having autism. And it came more clear to me that the kind of technocratic doctor focused, uh, framework of standard medical ethics was really a problem for disabled people. And um, that insight really began a whole rethinking of how we think about disability and why we think about it the way we do. And the the first thing I did um, to try to think that through was to immerse myself in the history of Christian thinking about disability. Um, So uh, 2007, I finished up an edited collection, collecting some of the main canonical figures in the Western traditions, thinking about human life and human diversity. That was called Disability in the Christian Tradition. And um, reading that material and disability studies began to give me a whole new toolbox for thinking about disability. Um, ultimately, this book is for theologians. It's, really, it's a pretty heavy book, uh, but it's to try to convince theologians that they need to think about disability. Um, and the basic message is if we think seriously about disability, it helps to position Christian faith better on all kinds of contemporary burning issues of our time. Uh, Despite the fact that usually disability is thought of as a niche issue like black theology or Latino theology or indigenous theologies of various types. So I'm trying to break it out of that niche um, domain um, by pointing out how doctrinally it's raising issues across the, across the board that really are quite, quite difficult and quite pressing. I'm just finishing up a more pastoral book that tries to deal with the question of how pastors and Christians negotiating these issues might respond to them. But um, Wondrously Wounded was um, a forum for me to really think these
0: issues through in the sort of largest and highest possible scale. Mm, thank you for that. And uh, we'll have to get you back on when the uh, the, the next book comes out. Uh, I was just thinking about, you know, you were talking about that, uh, you know, the, the, the edited volume you put together, looking at the whole history of, of Christians uh, interacting with disabilities. I remember when I interviewed David Clough a little while ago about his book on animals. Uh, one of the things that surprised me when you're reading that book is um, how the, this isn't a new issue, Christians thinking about animals and the treatment of animals. And often we think that like, you know, topics like that or maybe topics like disability theology or topics of like, you know, the whatever it might be um, are like very modern questions. Like they're the ones we're only starting to think about now. I guess, you know, we're, we're planning to talk about this, but we'll just do one little question. As you were kind of putting that whole, you know, compendium together, is there one thing that you'd like offer to people as a, you know, you might be surprised that, you know, Christians have, you know, paid a lot of attention to this? Was there one thing that kind of, or a couple things that kind of really emerged for you as you'd be surprised that this is not, we're not the first people to be thinking about this? Yeah. Well, um, I I think the first thing that really shocked me
1: is like you, I, like most Christians today, thought, oh, well, we're the first ones thinking about this. Um, And uh, I I think we live in a poverty, a period of uh, Christian poverty of knowing our own tradition so that we simply assume that they never thought about it before. So what I did with that project was at least say, let's, let's see what they did say. And of course, there are problematic things that they say. But for instance, um, one thread that really surprised me was uh, in, in the Confessions, Augustine talks about asking a priest to baptize a good friend of his who is in a fever and he thinks he's going to die. Augustine thinks he's going to die. So he goes to get the priest and the priest baptized the guy who's a good friend of Augustine's. And when the guy recovers unexpectedly, he's really angry that he's been baptized because he said, I told you not to baptize me and I didn't want to be baptized. Aquinas develops this through a whole anthropology, um, you know, uh, 500 years later. um, And he really thinks hard about who should receive sacraments, who should receive communion. How do we think about people who are intermittently sane, uh, who have expressed a wish and then lose their capacity to make, you know, informed consent. And he really does think about it in a lot of detail. And it, and it really, um, struck me really forcefully that the sort of questions that he was asking are the sort of questions that people in low church traditions often are asking when, for instance, they say, can somebody who can't confess the name of Jesus be baptized? He's asking exactly that same question a thousand years ago. Um, and we, it's just our sort of modern sense that we're at the cutting edge of history that makes us re the wheel all the time.
0: <laughs> That's really helpful. And I think, and, and obviously in Wondrously Wounded, you also pick up the patristic, uh, some patristic sermons, which you know, explore like through um, the example of lepers, you know, how it is that we look at those that we consider uh, misfortunate and lowly and, and, and things yeah. like that. So, that's helpful. Uh, in, in, when you were talking about the motivation for the book, you mentioned your son, Adam, uh, and you share experiences through the book of, of your life and your family's life with your son, Adam. And, and you kind of talk about how this isn't, you know, um, a choice to gain credibility, as if the only way to write on this topic is to, you know, be personally related and uh, impacted directly in that manner, but it is to, to witness to his witness. Uh, and allowing his witness to hopefully, this is a quote, explode some of the layers of uncomfortable avoidance and outright censorship that surround disability in churches, in public discussion of social care policy and in medical contexts. I guess one of my questions is, you know, what were some of the challenges in seeking to witness to another's witness? Uh, And potentially, can you share an example where you think that 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 witnessing maybe did help to explode, uh, you know, one of these, one of these areas. Sure.
1: Um, One of the central problematics in disability theology is who, who gets to narrate the situation of disability. And for very good reasons, people with disabilities have um, sort of developed the slogan, um, nothing about us without us. So don't have a whole, discussion about how it is to be disabled without us in the room and that's entirely appropriate um but it also assumes the capacity to speak um and adam doesn't and almost certainly never will have the capacity to speak in any sense that most people would think of as speaking so if he if he's going to have a story somebody is going to be telling that story and of course like all of us uh our stories are getting told. They're getting told by social care providers, by by doctors, by um, legislators. So his story is getting told. um, uh, And I thought it would be, it's important as a theologian to try to to narrate his life up close and in detail uh, as the church sees it. So that's one reason why I talk about um, witness. And another Reason to use the language of witness is that uh, it's very easy to to use a family member or someone who can't speak as an illustration of one's own theological agenda, um, and so I I'm trying to negotiate that set of tensions by by letting. Adam have a story by trying to articulate that, but not making myself the mouthpiece of it. And when I say I'm witnessing to his witness, that's, I'm trying to bring to words the impact of uh, God's work through his life, um, which is a certain slice of uh, his reality. Um, In terms of your aspect of how that positioning changes things. Um, uh, Nazarene Theological College had an event about disability uh, a few months ago. And Frances Young, um, who was one of the early British um, uh, theologians to to talk about having a son uh, with severe special needs. And um, so she was responding to the book. And I'd never met her. And my wife had long wanted to meet her, Stephanie. And uh, so the, my, our whole family traveled down, which meant that Adam was actually at the conference. And um, uh, he was floating around in the room the whole time we were having this discussion. And he wanted to be near me, and so he would often sit on the floor. And uh, you, you may have seen autistic people, they often do what's called stimming, like flapping their hands, or rocking, or making sort of guttural sounds. And he would often be doing that right next to me. And um, it's it's difficult to describe, but it definitely changes the whole discussion in a profound way. To actually have someone like that standing in front of you and next to the speaker, um, and, and Frances talks very art- articulately about having been sort of attacked for doing that to use her son as a as a prop for her speech. But it's a, so it's a very subtle thing. Um, that happens there, but my experience is that the stakes become much higher if you're in the room with people with what I like to refer to as a disability experience. They, they have skin in the game and, and often quite a lot of skin in the game. And so it, it always has much more dramatic tension than um, the usual academic conference. And uh, so... Uh, Adam in this gives, gives an example here, again, of how uh, it, sh- it shows you how theological claims actually matter in the real world. Like we're talking about this person right here. And what, one of the places where the tension really rose to the surface was <clears throat> a discussion about um, how we think about evil and how we think about natural evil and how we think about something like a genetic mutation um, and should we think of that as mutation? And should we think of that as something that's going to be erased mm. in the healing of the resurrection? Well, that, that's just a different discussion you have theoretically than when the person's in the room. And uh, the question, is it a result of the fall, really kind of um, is positioned very differently when you are talking about somebody who's sort of right in front of you.
0: Mm. Yeah, I think that's really, really helpful. Um, so part of my interest in, 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 you know, reading about this and trying to develop my own theological principle, So my brother is uh, autistic and has an intellectual disability, um, and and yeah, I remember thinking sometimes when we would talk about, you know, we'd hear like the idea of them of that being healed uh, or transformed in a, you, you know, in, in the in the eschaton, and then you're like, but then who would I know? Like, who would it be that is my my brother now, like, um, would I recognize some of that? And, yep. you know, it, is, it, it does raise that question We are actually thinking about that person who's, who's yep. sitting next to yep. you or, um, you know, who you spent so much, you know, has much joy with over your life. Yeah. Um, yeah, so
1: I think... Yeah, I mean, the, even the uh, kind of the provocative way to put that is um, we... There's a kind of killer cure mentality in, for instance, autism studies, right? Like, we, we're, we're going to throw everything to beat this disease... Um, and if we can't beat it, we can certainly get rid of it at the, you know, prenatal screening stage and we should get rid of it. And, um, I think it's once again, a kind of poverty of Christian imagination, not to be able to imagine that, um, there will be a continuity and how we have to be quite careful about how we talk about that continuity. But, um, the idea that Christians, Line up on the side of people who are uh, prosecuting the war on autism, but they do it in a theological vein. I think is really a quite quite offensive thought um, and uh, mm. I've learned from yeah. uh, disabled advocates how offensive that thought is because i'm I'm personally not disabled, but uh, mm. um, in in conversation and listening to uh, Christians who have various sorts of uh, disabilities, either acquired or congenital, they they sort of really press the question, why don't you want me to be like this?
0: Yeah, oh, what a good question. Thank you for that. Uh, so sometimes when I'm reading a book, I guess it often happens in, you know, you're, you're partway through a section and you're like, oh, they're they're hitting this theme a lot. And then you've re- remember that you actually forgot to read the subheading where the subheading is, whatever that yeah. theme is. And, um, now your book is Wondrously Wounded. And it, I got to admit, it took me a while to be, before I kind of clicked that he's talking about wonder a lot. Like he's really using this concept of wonder as a way into this whole conversation. And, and then I'm like, well, it's in the title. So I should have been maybe <laughs> aware that that could have been a direction he went. But, yeah. So I guess, you know, you do introduce the idea that the, that the concept of wonder is key to how we think about uh, disability and theology, and particularly around uh, birth of um, an, an anonymous child. Um, and you point to the lack of wonder in the modern secular West as a, uh, you know, kind of a pivotal issue about the way people welcome or not uh, someone into the community. So I guess could you talk to us a little bit about how you came to the idea that what you needed to deal with was wonder or the lack Mm -hmm. thereof? Um, Because I don't know if that's not something I would have thought like, oh, you know what the issue is? It's wonder. It's wonderful. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. Come say hi. Ah! You want to say hi to Leo? Come here. Say hi to Leo. you say hi? Hi, Adam. He's up here? (laughs)
0: How are you doing? <laughs> What's he doing? <laughs> do you have a dog?
1: We do, yes. <laughs> Freddy's here too. <laughs> okay, hey, come here. Come here. You need to go to sleep, okay? You go to sleep, yeah. Okay, I need to put a thing under the door, so nice. sorry about that. <laughs> we, um, uh, So, my initial work as a doctoral student was on technology, and uh, one of the things I discovered in that study was that the ways in which the Baconian project of subduing the world is so deeply ingrained in our cultural habits and our mental habits. Um, uh, um, if you think about the um the COVID-19 situation we're in right now, uh, there's two two sorts of response that are kind of obvious. One is to say uh, we need to get better testing and better viruses and we need to get it quicker and we need to get this under control. And I would, I'm calling that the Baconian response. Um, uh, There's another type of response that says somehow there's a feedback loop happening here. That's trying to tell us something about how we are living in the world and how we're living as creatures with other creatures and that we should listen to that and figure out how we should change. I think those are those trajectories move in opposite directions. Um, And I think largely our cultural uh, uh, trajectories and um, impulses are are Baconian, right? We want to continuously grow the economy. We want to mitigate bad results. We want to improve good results and we want to progress the depth and penetration of our power to keep everything in order. Um, And in that world, in that cultural space, uh, we're hard charging, we wanna get results and we are ending up in communicative silos where we can't really hear difference. Um, So my main reason for moving into the language of wonder is how do we slow people down and get them out of their usual ways of thinking about these issues? How do we sort of burn down the, uh, the barriers that that deafen people to thinking different thoughts. Um, and this actually is, um, a kind of ancient move that I'm making, right? Aristotle famously said that philosophy begins with wonder. Um, uh, the, the, the Bible actually has more wonder than you think. And most classically and relevantly, Psalm 139, I'm perfectly and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. And I know that well, right. The, the idea of God's works being wonderful is, is sort of just shot through all of Scripture, and um, so th- those strands seem to me really usefully to get the conversation moving in different directions. And then I hit on um, Franz Rosenzweig, who I draw on um, in some detail in one of the chapters, who gives the example of of uh, the role of wonder in a birth. Right, if you're if you're a parent, you know that seeing a birth and becoming a parent is is a wondrous experience. It's a kind of a resting experience. And Rosenzweig points out, um, the philosopher and the Baconian teaches us to analyze, to stop and say, what is wonder? Um, how does wonder work? Like, this is such a crazy thing. I want to understand it. I want to entrap it intellectually. And Rosenzweig says, no, that's not what that experience is supposed to do. That experience is supposed to um, energize your engagement with this new being. And, uh, because you wonder, you want to follow the story of this new being and it gets you through some rather hard patches, which you'll dissipate the wonder by trying to entrap it in thought. Um, it needs to be deployed in, in action so that the passive wonder experience of wonder needs to sort of position us ethically and motivate us in terms of uh, directing action. And it needs to, to do that by breaking us out of um, the, the kind of co-optive extractive uh, results-based frame of mind that is uh, so
0: so hegemonic in our time. Mm. Thank you. Cause yeah, and just, just kind of staying with that, cause you write later that uh, redemption is learning to receive the wonder of life, hearing the particular call that comes to each one in love. And as you're saying, wonder is often linked um, to a particular kind of uh, maybe postures, or as you say, um, like acknowledgement, reception, <coughs> discerning. Uh, are there particular ways that you've either yourself practiced or, or, or seen others practice this? You know, how do we begin to open ourselves up to wonder? Because as you say, it's not just this thing we wrestle and try to understand cognitively, but we've got to kind of, we're so entrenched in this particular Baconian. Um, way of doing things that it's going to take actual intentional um, effort in some regard to, to allow ourselves to experience this wonder again in in a new way. Do you have any thoughts there?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, I think you've sort of really grasped the the core point that it's wonder is more of a, a stance. Openness to wonder is more of a stance than a practice. I mean, you can't create wonder, Uh, It's not it's not a it's not under our control. It happens to us. We we suffer it. And um, uh, so the the real question that I think you're asking is how do we come to live so that what is outside of us and is different and maybe even disturbing from us can be taken seriously and can divert us from our own ways of seeing the world and our own plans and our own uh, agenda. Um, Yeah. As a, as a theologian, the only way to, to talk about that is to to talk about that outside is to talk about God um, that God uh, praise be to him um, in interrupts us and if and if God doesn't interrupt us from the outside then we are entrapped in our own um, uh, curving in on our own designs um, so Uh, without that big O outside being active, we really don't have a way to talk about the smaller interruptions by which that greater interruption happens. Um, uh, Practice, if I was to talk about a practice, I would say something I've been quite uh, intentional about and have picked up from the theological tradition is um, a daily sort of collective morning prayer, prayer. I think the word is the, is the given way in our tradition to constantly remind us that it's God's story and working and action that's outside of us that we have to join into. And um, we need to be looking and listening for uh, to be part of what God is doing. And so there's a kind of uh, scripture and prayer practice that uh, is a, starts the day by saying, Look, you you can't actually make this come out right. Um, You can be responsible uh, and you can do what you feel you've been given to do, but uh, things are gonna happen to you and you're gonna have to respond to those. And the thing that you want to happen to you is um, that God reveals himself in your own time and space.
0: Yeah, thank you, that's really, really great. so part two of the book is centered on the experience of your family during the lead up to and immediate period after Adam's birth. Uh, and what you demonstrate through this story uh, and, and you weave in some other stories as well. And then, and then your own theological reflection is the way normality expectation and freedom of choice are established in society, uh, particularly around the welcoming or not of a new one. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this norming functions, particularly in the way it establishes boundaries and what is at stake here theologically? Because I think what's really interesting in, in that chapter is how you're flipping on its head that, you know, often we think that um, our freedom is bound by like an authoritarian top-down, these are the choices you're allowed to make, but what you're saying is it's a much more uh, hidden way that, that yep. that's established. yeah.
1: Yeah, uh, um, one way to get at these issues is to think about something I discovered from the internet, the gender reveal party, Um, right? The gender reveal party, if you've not heard of it, is uh, a sort of uh, party you throw for your friends to, uh, after your your early prenatal testing, to to let them know um, whether it's going to be a boy or a girl. And uh, uh, obviously, that depends on a very well understood, culturally embedded practice of prenatal scanning, mm-hmm. um, and it it's tied up with uh, a certain kind of gift culture. Um, you need to know if it's going to be a boy or a girl. Uh, you need to know how to decorate the nursery if it's going to be <laughs> football players on the <laughs> on the bedspread or ballerinas, um, and it's bound to lead to disappointment if the child can't live up to those expectations. Um, mm. And of course, uh, very often that happens more often than we think. So there's a whole, there's a, there's a sort of world of uh, planning and expectation that builds up that uh, has such an internal coherence that um, its disruption is uh, uh, a kind of obvious mm. possibility. Um, those, So one of the things that I found really fascinating in my study of, of the social scientific work on prenatal screening process is that, um, uh, well, the, the, let me back up one step and say that um, we need to be aware that we live in a world where prenatal screening formally and technically and ethically precedes prenatal care. So you need to first decide if this new one is um, uh, going to be able to sustain the sort of love and expectations that you want to give to it. And if they're not, then um, they can be aborted. Um, So the, the social scientific research showed me a sort of fascinating sort of detail about how the sonographer actually in the moment of doing the ultrasound test, there's a lot of emotional work going on from the sonographer because the minute they say, oh, this is an anomalous fetus conception, new one, uh, they have to make a decision about whether they're going to say, oh, yay, congratulations. You've got a boy, you know, isn't it exciting or call in the doctors, you know, we've got a problem here. And, um, so the, the kind of Cultural world of the gender reveal, and uh, a child is going to sort of conform to a to a cultural script that we can expect, and we we we're, we're willing to make the investment in this child because they're going to conform to that script. It all plays out in a microcosm in that in those first few minutes in the prenatal screening
0: process. Um, I, th- I think that's really just just to say. Um, I was. I thought that was a really helpful insight and I was thinking because um, my wife's pregnant at the moment and um, so it was like very fresh in my mind going to the sonographer and you talk about the way there's almost like the patter to um, make sure there's not too many times of prolonged silence because yeah. you, know, you know people are nervous like oh, what does prolonged silence mean does that mean they've discovered something we should be nervous about Is like what yeah. is happening and and you know so that there is this kind of um, framing constantly going on or a constant reminder yeah. of oh I've seen Ten fingers. That's good. Like, oh, good, healthy. This good. Like, you know, there's a lot of that. You know, just constantly s- establishing, a, a, as you say, a framework of yeah, and 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 building. So there's a building rapport kind of thing. And, and exactly.
1: Yeah. Uh, and there was a uh, one um, analyst I found really sort of had a powerful sort of tagline for what's going on there. It's uh, she called it the sort of one two punch of pregnancy in the technocracy because if you think about if you don't go in for prenatal testing the only thing that a woman knows about her pregnancy is what she feels and therefore she feels certain motion she feels her own body she feels uh, she has a kind of internal relationship to the child laying on the table suddenly there's a picture emerges that everybody's talking to the picture they're not talking to the the woman's own uh ownership of knowing what's going on has now suddenly been um, divested into a screen and we can then personify and reattach that image to what's in, in, in the belly of the pregnant mother, but it has to be reattached. So there's a kind of um, breaking apart and then a conditional reattachment. And it's that conditional reattachment piece that I think is um, where we can, in our cultural world today intervene in it, but it's probably as Christians also worth pointing out that that, that detachment moment is also not theologically innocent. Um, but I think you were alluding in your question to uh, Annie Waldschmidt's point about um, the shift in the way legal norms work um, uh, in modern liberal societies, which incentivize and disincentivize action. They don't. Uh, prohibit and criminalize in the same way that we usually think about um, uh, uh, law working, right? It's true that if you ship in a ton of heroin, you you will be caught as a lawbreaker and thrown in jail, but um, the way law works now is more of a sliding scale, a statistical norm, um, uh, Lawmakers try to say, what behaviors do we want from people and what behaviors do we want to disincentivize? Let's sort of tax things that we don't want them to do, that cost the state money, that create problems for the, the healthcare infrastructure. Let's make those difficult. We don't have to tell people, no, we don't have to criminalize those things. Let's just make those things difficult. And the things we want people to do, let's make them easy. Let's incentivize them. Let's give people little rewards for doing them. Um, and the net effect is if you uh, have, um, if, if you're in a prenatal screening context and you have a child, a new one who is anomalous genetically, and that shows up, nobody's going to say, you have to get rid of that child. What they're going to say is, um, well, you know, that's going to be really hard on you. And you know, that's going to um, be hard on your family. It's going to be hard on their siblings. And it's going to cost the state a lot of money. And it's probably going to put a burden on the on health uh, healthcare system. And, and your insurance is really going to go through the roof. Uh, but we're not telling you what to do. And you can do anything you want to do. But not very many people do what you want to do. And it's kind of a heroic thing if you want to do it. But it's also implied it's kind of a stupid thing. Um, and so our, our um, Walshman says that this shift in types of the ways our liberal society governs action actually leaves um, people who want to bear a, a child that is genetically anomalous in a very exposed position, um, uh, as, mm-hmm. as somehow, um, as, as she puts it, choosing to march to the beat of a different drummer. But they're always doing that um, against the grain of all the social um, incentives and disincentives. And that mm-hmm. becomes very tiring
0: very quickly. Because then you've also established now that like a doubt that you should then ask for additional help when you need it or ask for the state to give you whatever, uh, a, a, you know, access to services because well, no, you chose to take this path exactly. against the better thing. So like, you know, that's your, you have to now do it heroically as in. Exactly.
1: Oh, yeah. So it's your choice, right? That's why the language of modern liberal society functions on giving people more choice. Less support, more choice. More choice to make their own lives what they want to do. And if you want to impoverish yourself by taking on a special needs child, that's up to you, but you're going to have to bear the consequences for that. Um, so so uh, theologically speaking, it's these are one of the ways that we built a culture that systematically shuts down any real openness to human difference. Um, and, uh, and it does it from these very earliest moments of life, right? I don't have a special agenda to talk about abortion. I'm trying to talk about how culture, our culture is very sophisticated and coherent from the beginning of life to the end of life, that it it has all kinds of reasons to refuse to say, this person we cannot say is fearfully and wonderfully made.
0: Yeah. That's really important and, and, and very helpful. And so you're kind of re- re- touching on that, that, you know, this process is, is this kind of undermining of a parent's instincts and intentions. You say it's, it's a removing from the kind of internalised relationship to giving key as an external thing, but it's also very much a, a, a push to fear more, to hear all the things that there are to fear in this process, all the things that can go wrong, how that can have an impact for the next 60 years of your life and then beyond um, if, if your child outlives you as this will push toward fear. Now to counter this uh, both this kind of sense of unwelcome and this sense of uh, fostering fear uh, you turn to the theological resources of Annunciation and and doxology. Uh, you know people are going to read the book and get the full picture of how this is but but for you how do these, you know, hinted a bit of how these are the, a way of breaking these kind of unwelcome and and, and breaking this kind of fear with a, a new way of, of naming and and uh, and praise. Yeah.
1: Well, it's definitely the case that our culture, um, part of this uh, statistical norm way of incentivizing disincentivizing action is. To hype up uh, fear of bad outcomes, right? So we we want to we want to control outcomes. We live in a world where success equals controlling outcomes, and if we are told you could die from this, right? Like the that our 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 COVID moment is once again very typical, right? Like uh, huge numbers of people are asymptomatic, but we're not getting stories. In the newspaper about those people, we're getting stories from, you know, the 40-year-old father of three uh, who's, you know, got his respirator on and telling us a story about how he's just about dying and you should really take this seriously. Which is, it's true, it probably should be taken seriously, but the, the motive of fear is a very different type of motive than um, a, 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 a theologically defensible Motive, uh, right? Like, I mean, just in the most simple Mm -hmm. biblical terms, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Um, uh, uh, You know, if if we stay with the COVID theme, um, uh, I was just reading Luther's um, essay on on whether you should flee or not from the plague, and um, he's very very eloquent on. the, if the fear of the Lord is to beginning to acknowledge the fear of dying and of infection can't be our driving force to even begin to negotiate this question. And I think the same is true of uh, all kinds of disability related issues. So. Um, the the theme of, of doxology and praise, as well as lament and petition are the polls that I try to um, offer as alternatives to sort of fear and control uh, that are that are our sort of default settings and they're the they're the two basic forms of of human converse with God um, if we don't pray if we don't thank God for things if we don't ask God for things and say what to God what we're afraid about we don't really expect or await anything from God so um, at the most basic level I'm trying to remind Christians that uh, uh, it's it's much easier to fall into uh, the world's entrapment in fear that creates that kind of uh, "we've got to get this under control" impulse. If we don't, if we're not in a living conversation with God and saying, "Yes, of course I'm afraid. I don't, you know, I don't want to die. Uh, I don't want to. I don't want to live a life of certain of grinding uh, care for a child who's who's, uh, you know, I can't have a life because of." Um, uh, And if we get into a position of starting with um, uh, petition and lament and doxology and praise, um, it breaks into our usual routines, these these usual routines of sort of fear and then sort of grasping to control. Um, And those are routines to protect ourselves from disruption. And in relation to disability, we're protecting ourselves from this disruption that they that we think they are bringing into our life. And I think, just to make, again, make this point very concrete, um, uh, over and over again, if you're in the field of disability, you, um, you will come across pastors who uh, knowingly or unknowingly experience someone with special needs coming into their church as, as a, uh, a sort of um, someone who is gonna demand something from them. Uh, right. So if someone with autism comes into church, it's immediately a problem. Uh, and it's a problem that's going to require some resources to deal with that. There's a, this this, this sort of impulse to fix it and get it all somehow packaged up and that it's going to cost us to do that is a very common one, even in our churches. Um, so that, uh, uh, the idea that, that there's disruptions, to our life trajectories that need to be fixed becomes very quickly intertwined with certain people that are labeled disabled. So doxology and praise is a is a stance the biblical tradition tries to train us to inhabit toward God that helps us not to fall into those self-protective regi- regimes, those self-protective regimes that pigeonhole some people as too costly to to have around, um, and of course, it at the same time gives us uh, the apparatus, the kind of uh, vocabulary to deal with the fact that there are hard things about disability. There are sort of painful things about it. There are <clears throat> that there's actual illness that 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 um, that we do fear bad outcomes from, and if we have no way to express that except for to fall into this loop of fear and control. Um, we're going we're to do things to those that we love um, uh, that really aren't theologically defensible. Mm, thank you for
0: that. And I think you're you're right Sorry. touching on that point. Sorry, I
1: was just grabbing a
0: <laughs> bowl of water. Yeah, no, no, no worries. <laughs> um, I think you're right, touching on that point of, you know, that there are actual things that do take extra work or, or extra preparedness or, or support. Uh, and you're kind of in this kind of when you're talking about the prenatal um, screening that there's, you know, you can imagine a world where there's, you know, the anomaly, genetic anomaly is discovered, but celebration for the wonder of this child, All right, and now we're going to bring in a support person to talk through, you know, the actual specifics of it, but it comes out of the, um, gracious welcome of this new one, the celebration of a life uh, and of all the possibilities that are ahead of you. And then, yes, and now from there, here are some things that the best learning of our time can support you uh, in how to do this exactly. and navigate systems and stuff. So, yeah. Uh, a few weeks ago uh, in our lectionary, we had the gospel reading where uh, Jesus comes across a man born blind and is asked by his disciples, you know, who's seen as responsible for his blindness, his own or his parents. Um, I was on, I'll shout it out, I was on the uh, By the Well podcast. Uh, You can check it out for all your lectionary needs. And it was this week that I was on. Uh, So I spent a bit of time thinking about, you know, all the different ways you might approach the text and and different ways I've heard it, uh, different angles I've seen. And I think there's definitely... Uh, an effort you know out out of an effort to avoid reprehensible theologi theologizing that the birth of anomalous child is a punishment from God that in a, in, a, in a rightful attempt to avoid that people are reticent to to kind of even talk about sin and disability in the same conversation even when they're not trying to link the two causally uh, i'm not saying everyone does that but a thought i had when exploring this but your work and and we've kind of been getting at it a little bit in an earlier response certainly doesn't shy away from sin talk uh indeed naming sin or or estrangement as key to the problem individuals churches and society encounter when faced with the full variety of human difference and and we were talking about that before that from from woe to go this society is built around not being able to welcome that full variety uh can you speak a little bit about how this book frames the place of a doctrine of sin in a theological account of disability?
1: Well, I think it's, it's quite astute to have picked up that uh, sin, when people are talking about disability, is a topic that they just try to stay, stay away from because um, we're all rightfully nervous about drawing any connection between the way someone's life is And, uh, you know, the question that is asked in this parable, right? Like, who sinned, this person and their parents? Um, uh, But I think one of the reasons I dive into the topic is that I think uh, shying away from it leaves the usual answer among, in the background of Christian's assumption, untouched. And I would say that the usual answer is the world has fallen, creation is broken because of it, and so accidents happen. And uh, God gave us freedom, so he let Adam and Eve fall, and he let the world uh, have you know, natural evil in it, and he isn't going to wade in and over, overrule our freedom. And so uh, there's a brokenness to the material world that uh, yields all kinds of disabilities through accidents, through people's evil, and through um, uh, sort of glitches in natural processes. Um, but the more I thought about it, the more I thought it was really problematic to just leave that default setting unaddressed, because think about how it positions Christians pastorally. Um, you know, hi, welcome to church. Sorry. Uh, sorry the fall hit you so hard, right? Like it's, uh, uh mm-hmm. it, it, it's, there's nothing practically that, that comes out of that to help us engage and welcome and, uh, draw in, uh, people um, now, I'm not saying uh, I wouldn't dispute that there is a theological truth that creation is is broken. There's natural evil because of the fall. But I would deny that there's any direct link between natural evil and, and disability. Um, so the usual focus on sin as the result of the fall um, exacerbates what I'd call the hesitation blues, right? Like when Christians are face to face with someone with disability, if their first thought is, uh, "Gosh, I'm glad that they're going to be not like this in the resurrection," and "Gosh, it's 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 kind of sad that the world has fallen and they're this way," that doesn't give them any any place to go uh, pastorally, and um, and it doesn't actually allow them to to be open to the wonder of this particular life, which um, every every life is um, often precisely in its difference, um, quite interesting, quite exciting, quite, uh, enlivening. Mm. Um, uh, so one way I'd put this theologically was to say that, uh, Jesus was, was born. It was good that he was born. He was born good, like every creature. And, um, but he was born into a fallen world. Um, and, uh, uh he suffered the cross, not because he was he was born into an evil world, but because um, that evil world actually expressed itself and and actively killed him. So uh, the wor- the gone wrongness of the world that matters to me is the type that led to the crucifixion. Um, the task it seems of theology it seems to me is to highlight how those killing dynamics operate in our time. So uh, we need to talk about sin because of the sinful drives that that we have internalized and that the elaborated cultural practices that we've already talked about um, that we carry in us and which constantly lead us to think um, that it's normal and okay to think that uh, uh, the it, it's better to be able-bodied and normal than to be part of that sort of subgroup who uh, who's particularly affected by the effects of the fall um, uh, and who we ultimately experience as threatening because we don't wanna end up like them. So that to me is the sin that if we don't talk about it, it just sort of festers and constantly keeps injecting um, pejorative readings of disability into our sort of um, underlying
0: uh, uh, experience of someone with disabilities. Well, yeah, I think I think that's that is I think is so helpful. Uh, so with, with the, I want to stay with sin a little bit. So early on, you established sin as kind of the refusal to accept creaturely limit, uh, and a, a refusal which causes us to devalue others. Uh, and later, you come to the the pivotal theological problem presented by disability: uh, human beings need to be rescued from seeing themselves as fundamentally able. Uh, And and this is a a rescue mission that we cannot pull off alone, uh, as you kind of hinted at earlier in in our conversation about wonder. I guess my my curiosity is, so that that early statement of, you know, refusing to accept creaturely limit, probably a reasonably common understanding of sin uh, well expressed. I'm I'm curious then about the, I think it's a, a helpful link, but I'd be interested to talk a bit about it, Will you connect that to this, uh, that, that, it, that we breach our creaturely limit in this kind of seeing ourselves as, as fundamentally able?
1: I think it's important to, to sort of sit with the arrogance of the assumption that um, we're valuable because we, unlike some others, are competent, can do things, right? The term disability is offensive to many people who have to carry that label Precisely because of the dis, um, uh, uh, they are being categorized as somehow less because they can't do things. Um, uh, and I think uh, the the idea that I'm more I'm more than a not being able to do something is is really it's a, it's a kind of um, holier than thou self reference that. That's very corrosive, and which is very difficult to bring into view. Um, you know, it's it's um, it's of a piece with postcolonial and racial critiques. You know, of whiteness, right? Like the the problem of whiteness is some people don't have to think about whether their skin color matters, and other people do have to think about it, right? It, it's a it's a similar sort of dynamic, right? People who have to say have to be labeled not able to do things. Um, are very aware of the arrogance of all those people who think that they can do things and therefore they're in a category that's somehow one step more valuable than those people who can't do things. So I would say in answer to your theological question is that Christ saves us from this dynamic by binding us into a diverse body, right? We're, We're used to thinking about Passage from Galatians about neither slave nor free nor rich nor poor, male or female, and I think able-bodied and and not so is is another one of those type of distinctions. Right? It's not. Yeah. It's not um, denying that that there are real distinctions, but it's highlighting. Paul in that passage is highlighting that the church is a place where those distinctions and the antagonisms that are culturally associated with them are being broken down and a, a sort of peace is able to emerge that doesn't erase those distinctions, but takes them seriously in a, in a new and liberating way. Um, one of the passages where I think this is, where in the book I sort of talk about um, this being worked out is the discussion Paul has with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11, where the rich Christians are used to uh, Having, well, they're hosting church in their house. So um, they're used to sort of setting it up like the rich patrons dinner. So the kind of rich folks come over at 10 in the morning and they're having a, a sort of love feast and they're drinking. And by the time the slaves get there, uh, you know, after work at 10 o'clock at night, uh, they're tired and hungry and um, they're getting the leftover wine and they're getting very little food. And so there's like a clear distinction that is not this sort of peaceable relation of difference going on. And um, I think it's really quite important. It's a kind of hermeneutic key to thinking about uh, um, how we're rescued from our able bodiedness that to that, uh, Paul doesn't get into all economic uh, analysis. Um, uh, what he says is, wait for one another. Um, uh, you, you rich people need to slow down and take account of and be empathetically bound to the plight of the rest of the body. And I think that's a really quite powerful um, sort of lever to begin to move these questions because it's really the, the the ones who see themselves as in the powerful position who are the problem and who need to slow down. Um, and, and I think that is cognate with um, the way able-bodied people think, well, let's give, you know, let's, let's give the prosthesis and ramps and cool wheelchairs and whatever we need to give to people who can't keep up so they can keep up. And I think it's really quite useful to listen to Paul negotiate a very similar kind of distinction and say, wait for one another. Um, it's clear who's going to have to do the waiting in that sort of solution. Mm, your body,
0: you a body. You need to act like it. Yeah, that's so good. And I think that 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 gets us into you know that talk of the body of Christ. Your your book makes a, a powerful and constructive claim that the body of Christ is a circulator of divine gifts, uh, and you have a few analogies that kind of work that out. And and you say that if there is such a body, it is because each member serves in a temporal a temporally extended manner the giving of the Trinitarian God via each member. The individual believer is not simply an individual, but a member who has and reciprocates charisma. Individuals are members of Christ's body charismatically. And and for this reason, you claim the church can only exist as church so long as the Spirit's gifts are being sensitively recognised and handed on. Uh, Now, again, like this this chapter 9, which, you know, it really goes... Along with Paul's argument is is really well developed, and it's very worth people's checking out. So, I'm not you know, we're not going to obviously cover all of it here. But the way I kind of saw, you know, I'm trying to unpack this maybe in a simplistic way is, you know, we cease to be the church if we refuse to accept that all members have gifts to give, and that these gifts are not de- you know necessarily dependent on the skills we have when we walked in the door, and that we cease to be the church if we are unwilling to be impacted served, confronted, blessed, bound um, by those gifts.
1: Yeah, this is um,
0: uh,
1: one of the main constructive moves in the book and and it's certainly an important um, theme to me. And it might be useful to make a distinction between um, what Paul's talking about, which are gifts of the spirit and creational gifts. Right? We could say that every... Every creature has does have capacities and aptitudes. Um, uh, uh, you know, our eyes are less acute than than an eagle's, and our smelling is less acute than a than an elephant. Uh, right? We can we can we can catalog capacities, and um, there is a tradition that Christianity, unfortunately, inherited uh, from uh, Greek thought of trying to catalog humans as at the top of the totem pole because they have some features that no other creature has, typically rationality. And you can see why that's problematic in um, putting some human beings in a subhuman position. Um, So I'm, I'm trying to get out of a range of dilemmas in this domain by Affirming yes that there are creational gifts and aptitudes, but that's not what Paul's talking about in First Corinthians twelve, and he's quite explicitly not talking about that mm. um, because he's talking about something that he says uh, the Spirit allocates. Um, so uh, the allocation of created and even our own discipline to develop our skills is 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 important and it's good and it, it's useful. Um, And any business can recognize, oh, that person really has a bunch of skills, right? But the church is not a business and it needs to recognize its own particular grammar. So um, uh, in affirming that people do have creational gifts and aptitudes, we have to then notice that our society ranks these aptitudes um, so that to be disabled is to be by definition, be putting lower on the ranks of Christians that we desire in our churches. So, so one problem I'm trying to deal with is one that my colleague Grant McCaskill, in his book on autism, is very sort of sharply articulated. That uh, it's very rare that people, pastors who are interested in growing and discipling their churches, aren't going to have the reaction when, for instance, somebody like your brother with autism comes in. Oh, this is not who I was looking for. Right? This is this is a, a dilemma. This is a task. Is a problem, um, mm. and that's built on uh, a sub-Christian, creational picture of the gifts that that hasn't yet grasped what Paul's talking about in uh, in First Corinthians twelve, which he insists um, the gifts are uh, energeia. They're something that's enacted, and they are diaconos, something it's their service, right? So they are enacted works of service. Between the brethren to upbuild the brethren. So, uh, uh, the reason why the spirit's gifts are important is they break up the ranking of skills and creational gifts um, that the world assumes to be normal, in which people with disabilities are at the bottom, by raising the question to what end? Like, how are those skills being deployed? To upbuild the body and to serve the body and to reveal um, uh, uh, God's love and compassion for for the body. Um, uh, they're never self-aggrandizing, uh, and I think it's. It, uh, I'm, I'm, I was using First Corinthians twelve account of the gifts of the Spirit to try to point out how the grammar of the polity of the body of Christ is different from the grammar of, for instance, that the business in which if you can't contribute, then you're out. Um, you know, you, you need to be able to do something here. If you can't do something, then we don't need you. And that is too often the way the church functions.
0: Yeah, I think that's that's so helpful on, on, on so many accounts. I mean, a a lot of what I've been in my own context working here where there's a lot of mental health issues, underemployment, um, you know, people in temporary emergency accommodation is that, you know, one of the great tricks of the world at the moment is your value is um, based on what you can value add. Uh, Mm -hmm. And I think the gospel runs so counterintuitive to that as the good news that your um, worth, value uh, and and giftedness is, is independent from from the, what the world says is, you know, economically or uh, good. <laughs> uh, maybe as we land this plane, one more question, which maybe we'll begin, I don't know, to touch a bit on what, on what you're working on uh, now, but it's it's certainly it's raised in this, in Wondrously Wounded as well, that inclusion is a great catch cry uh, of many churches, I mean, and, and domains beyond the church too, Uh and, and it's been pointed out in, in many places and raised in your book that inclusion is not always the best framework uh, to be used for thinking about this because it retains a we and a they, and it's often where the we um, continue to hold the center and then just kind of graciously absorb a they and say, yep, yeah, you can now be a part of it. Just so long as, you know, you look as much like us as possible, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and aren't we so gracious for, for opening the door and now letting you um, sit with us for lunch. And, um, and you posit that, by contrast, what Christianity offers is a a politics of redeemed communion, uh, and and you've kind of been discussing that through Paul's discussion in one Corinthians twelve. And you you also conclude this chapter by reminding Christians that they are Gentiles, reminding God to graft us to add us onto Israel. So it's not really we're not really in a great position to be uh, opening and closing doors of you know who we include. Uh, I'm wondering what, if you have any, just to share, kind of other you know things you've encountered or helped uh, establish where churches have sought to move, you know, beyond charity, beyond inclusion, beyond accessibility, uh, and actually trying to do that work of what you were kind of talking about before of slowing down, of becoming a body, and and of seeking that redeemed communion.
1: Um, I mean, you just. Uh, uh, pointed sort of alluded to the critique of charity which is one of the places where disability theology as an academic discipline came from Um, and i was uh sort of chuckling this week uh because it was a really good example in the news um of russia and china shipping medical supplies to to america to the us um uh and it reveals the usual power dynamics that go on between those those three countries and of course uh, uh, the Russians um, exploited that by uh, calling it humanitarian aid, right? So now we're we're aiding them, right? And that that's a, a, a kind of example of the way the charity model works, right? The, the, somebody assumes that they're the powerful one who is helping somebody else. Um, in this case, usually it's America who's helping everybody else, who everybody else is sort of at their at their behest, but. Uh, at this moment, a kind of slight turnabout happens, and all of a sudden you see that um, uh, the kind of aid is flowing the other direction. But um, the international case usefully displays how really what we have going on is not cooperative action but agonistic action. It's a kind of who's gonna who's gonna be on top here? And um, so I'm really happy that inclusion is, something that many churches are aspiring to in a way that they haven't, you know, in the past 30 years, let's say, um, uh, even though it probably should be said that often churches are being sort of pushed by government to do that. Um, But nevertheless, having inclusion language is better than not having it. But I, you know, in this book, which is really a kind of full-blooded theological account, we have to say that, Um, the first step in really thinking theologically about these kind of issues is to face our own assumptions about being the able ones who are responsible to help other Mm, people. mm. Um, It's easy to be the one who has everything and wants to be a good person by helping those in need. That's the classic charity model. But um, uh, those who are on the receiving end all the time uh, very rightly point out we just don't want to play that game anymore, right? Like we're not we're not going to be the all time recipients, so that you can feel that you are living up to your moral duty to look after people like us. Like we're every much as participant in this business Church as you are, and we're just done playing that game. And I think that's that's right that they're done playing that game. But the question is, what follows from it? And I think what i what I'm pressing, and I think it's sort of come up quite a few times in this conversation, is that we have to turn the question around, what do I receive from God through those who the world devalues, Um, right? So we need an account of why and how the world is devaluing devaluing some people, right? That's where the sin stuff I think is playing, doing work. Um, But we also need an account of how God uses those perpetual outside class to confront those of us who think of ourselves as normal and as the, as the beneficent ones, um, which I take for granted when I'm an able-bodied and talented and articulate and uh, you know, culturally powerful person. Um, I think turning that question around, what what am I receiving from God? Or what does God want to give me through those that the world is devaluing Uh, begins to give us or at least invites developing the antenna for the much subtler and often much more powerful gifts that those we usually discount as having anything to say convey to us. I mean, it will take slowing down, right? Like if you want to hear the story of someone with cerebral palsy, you're going to have to uh, slow down and listen to the way that they speak. Um, And sometimes that takes time and sometimes that's difficult and sometimes you don't feel like you're getting anywhere um uh, but i'm i'm simply pointing out that that's what it means to be church and even more than that the the body of christ is not the body if we're always looking as the corinthians were incidentally to some people follow paul and some people follow apollos and right there's these other icons of high performance that are being debated right that's kind of the game that most of us play in churches. Like we want to have upfront people who are really good at what they do. Um, And um, that means that the last thing that we're can imagine is somebody who uh, the world has already schooled us is by definition, not good at doing anything right. We can't, we can't have, they can't preach to us. They can't uh, uh, sort of, Uh, prophesy to us they can't sort of pray for a world that we can't see Um, uh, and I think that really is an impoverishment of what it means to be church and if you've been in contexts where um, uh, the people labeled disabled are
0: actually part of what's going on church I mean you can certainly feel the difference. Thank you for that I think that's a beautiful place to end the book is Wondrously Wounded, Theology, Theology, Disability and the Body of Christ out with Bailey University Press. The author and guest was the wonderful Brian Brock. Uh, Brian, is there anything else you want to plug or any other ways people can connect with you or your teaching or anything like that, that you want to draw our attention to?
1: Uh, well, I, of course, would love um, to have interactions around the book, which I've put a lot into, including... Um, uh, working hard to get past the problem of uh, uh, introducing myself into an academic book and my private life, um, making it public. Um, I, I, uh, I'd i love to sort of have more dialogues about that. Um, but I'm also working on this popular book coming out with um, Baker Academic Press. It'll, uh, it's in pastoral series, it'll just be called disability. And I think the subtitle will probably be wait, waiting for one another. Um, It'll be much more practical, um, hands on, how do we actually do this? And, and uh, um, it'll also be focused more on some of these biblical questions. What about, um, how do we think about the fact that Jesus seems to heal everybody he meets? And what do we think about this question that we touched on? Um, Whether the resurrection will erase all disability. Um, uh, uh, how do we actually connect the Bible to disability? Uh, right? Like we don't when a when a when somebody who's clearly rich walks into our church, we don't start thinking about all the stories of rich people in the Gospels, which would be a pretty pejorative <laughs> thing to do, right? But why do we never do that? Um, so why do we always do it about people with disabilities? So.
0: Those are the questions I'll be dealing with in this book that'll be out uh, within the next year or so. Great. Well, let's all keep an eye out for that. Uh, thank you again for joining us. And uh, yeah, we'll hope to speak soon. Thanks for having me, Ian.